pathways, I think, um, force us to start with a destination rather than a process moving forward. I would say in education reform in our country, we tend to take steps moving forward, but we often don't start with the end in mind. That is Josh Weiner, founder and executive director of the College Excellence Program at the Aspen Institute, where he also serves as a vice president. He was reflecting on the power of the pathway in higher education as a means to foster student success and to guide students to fulfilling careers. Welcome to the AKA Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Anne Kadimian. In each edition of AKA Innovation, I will be talking with leaders and innovators whose bold ideas and actions have led to transformative change within their industries or throughout the world. We will explore these concepts or ideas as a means to inspire and drive change across the educational ecosystem. In today's conversation, I will be talking with Josh Weiner about the concept of a pathway that can connect the proliferation of higher education options for students and inform their choices to result in student success, meaningful employment, and to foster the partnerships between higher education institutions, employers, and the students we serve. Josh, welcome. Welcome to AKA Innovation. It's wonderful to have you here, an honor to have you here. Um, I wanted to talk today about uh, pathways as a concept that has been really um, impactful in how we think about education and the transformation of our education system to make it more connected, more equitable, and more focused on workforce outcomes as well. Um, I wonder if, if we could start with uh, you just reflecting a little bit on this concept of pathways, why you see it as a useful tool in your work. Yeah, uh, well, great to be here with you as well. And, and, and um, you know, pathways, I think, um, force us to start with a destination rather than a process moving forward. I would say in education reform in our country, we tend to take steps moving forward, but we often don't start with the end in mind. And the idea of pathways is that students have goals for their education, and if we understand the goal for that education, we can create a path that takes students there. That path will include learning outcomes, it will include particular courses, it will include programs of study, it will include non-academic experiences that they may have, but the fundamental idea is that if we understand where students are going, we're more likely to be able to help them, and they're more likely to be able to help themselves make the choices aligned to those pathways. Absolutely. So in that concept of choices, let's talk a little bit about the um, curious nature of American higher education, American education more generally. Uh, before we started today, you were emphasizing the importance of the proliferation of opportunities that we have here, right? We have a very eclectic set of institutions and possibilities. Talk a little bit about that context, if you will, of the American education system and the multiple institutions that we have. Yeah, so, so in the United States, for, for better and worse, we've chosen a pretty um, entrepreneurial and market-based system of higher education. Uh, we have roughly 4,000 institutions of higher ed in our country. We have very high access rates. Something like two-thirds of all Americans will take some post-secondary education. 
during their lives. And we have an incredible variability from research universities to small liberal arts colleges to community colleges and open access uh, regional universities. Um, and, and so what we've chosen to do is to fund, in essence, students to go to these institutions rather than uh, what's done in other countries, which is much a much higher level of public support for institutions. So even when we, uh, when taxpayers are paying for education, it is often through voucher programs, Pell Grants or other uh, uh, systems where individuals get to choose where they go to college and the money follows the individual. So when you add up these two things, one is sort of uh, unfettered choice. And one other dynamic that's important to recognize is that the vast majority of those 4,000 colleges in our country, two and four year colleges, are open access or nearly open access. Very few colleges, maybe 10%, uh, reject more students than they accept. So what you've got is a system of 4,000 colleges that um, virtually anybody can find a place in multiple institutions. They bring their tuition dollars and they bring uh, tax supported, taxpayer supported public dollars with them. Uh, and then the institutions themselves really get to decide what it is they offer. They have to be accredited, they have to meet certain standards of quality, but beyond that, they're really free to offer whatever they want. So what you've got is um, a market-based system of higher education. Uh, to the extent it's supported by the public, that is done through vouchers, not through, as we do with K-12 education, direct support for the, for the schools themselves, um, and very high participation rates. Uh, so that's the, the, um, the context in which Pathways becomes so incredibly important. So really interesting, um, the emphasis, the possibilities of access, the money following the students, um, and yet transitioning between those institutions or you know, a student making choices across those institutions, that also seems to be a challenge and a place where we need to think about the role of pathways as well. Could you talk more about then how the idea of pathways can support students across multiple institutions or in the transition across these. Sounds like access, you know, there's there's open gateways, right? There's possibilities and there's funding that you can get you can get to to support the work you're doing as well. But it's the transitions that could also pose a problem too. No doubt. So so again, if we start with the end in mind, um, uh, let's let's just take two different or or three different career trajectories. Um, somebody who wants to do social work who wants to be a counselor for individuals, many of those jobs require a master's degree. Um, so imagine a student now who is in ninth grade and who ultimately will have that trajectory. They may not know it yet, but the trajectory will be that they want to go into social work. Well, they're going to need to finish high school. They may take dual enrollment classes in high school, college classes while in high school. Um, if they're lower income, they're likely to start at a community college then they'll have to transfer to a four-year institution, and then they'll have to go to their master's program. Those are four different institutions, each with their own incentive structures, uh, and each of which um, uh, will educate that student for part of that pathway. Well, you can imagine that if we don't know where that student is heading, 
And if each of those institutions doesn't work in concert with one another, students are going to have all kinds of inefficiencies in how they do the explore things. And if inefficiency sounds like like it's a um, like you know I'm, I'm extending this idea of a marketplace, um, inefficiencies to an individual look like taking a bunch of courses and exploring things simply because their life suggests that they should. Um, so does their high school offer uh, an AP psychology class? If it doesn't, they may not get a taste of that until they get to college. If they happen to be at Montgomery Blair where there's AP psychology, I'm guessing that's true, uh, then they get a chance to do it. Um, uh, so this, a student who doesn't take AP psychology takes AP US history, doesn't know about what they're exploring. The AP US history, when they get to community college, may not apply to the degree they ultimately choose, which is pre-psychology. Um, so, so as you move through the system, what ends up happening is that all kinds of choices that students make or don't make uh, end up having ramifications for whether their pathway is headed in the right direction, how wide that pathway might be, and ultimately how efficiently they can get to the end goal, which in this case is a social work degree. That's very different from somebody, by the way, who is uh, going into engineering uh, or computer science, where you don't need a graduate degree, which is also very different from somebody who maybe uh, ends up being um, working in HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, who only needs an 11-month certificate after they graduate from high school to get a good job. So you know, each trajectory has multiple transitions that require coordination between the different entities that are working with a student and teaching them. This is so interesting. I want to pick up on your market metaphor and thinking about the free market metaphor. So here at the universities at Shady Grove, we've been thinking a lot about the non-traditional students that we serve. So students who are um, working, they uh, often are taking care of family, parents, or children. Uh, they are probably first in their family to go to college, perhaps. They are financing their own education. So it's not necessarily in the cards to start college at a four-year university and go off to it and stay at the campus. And so thinking about how to center and to really serve these students in a really clear way, Pathways is a big, a big part of it. And thinking about not only um, supporting them, but you know, ensuring that their choices can be empowered and connected as well. And yet, what you're describing is a free market system that has a lot of choice, but it's the lack of information, the lack of connectivity, and sometimes the geographic boundedness of the person making the choices as well that can really interfere with that. Can, can you talk a little bit more about some of these, we could say market imperfections, if you will, that, that prevent um, the full empowerment of a student as a consumer of education? Yeah, it's a great, great point. So, so um, clear program maps that help a student move forward, and then advising to help students curate their decision-making so that they get on and stay on a path. Those are the two keys to all of this. And that's really the obligation that we have as institutions of higher education, or K-12, or actually employers, which is to help rationalize the maps, the programs of study, so that we know what should be on that path. So I was speaking earlier about educational 
outcomes that should be on that path? Um, what courses are there? What work-based learning experiences, applied learning experiences should be on that path? Rationalizing those is absolutely key because it's not just students who get confused, but it's our advisors themselves. Um, so one thing we've got to do is rationalize and make clear that the what's been dubbed by uh, uh, authors of Redesigning America's Community Colleges as the cafeteria approach to higher education, where you go down the cafeteria line and you pick a bunch of different things and you look down on your tray and you have six desserts and no protein. Uh, you know, <laughs> these are the kinds of things that can happen um, uh, to a, a guided pathway approach where where we're saying, you know, if you, if, you're, if you seem to be aimed towards social service, a hu human endeavor, here are the kinds of courses you'd want to take early in your college career. So they're, they're career clusters, if you will, and explore, allowing you to move away and narrow as you go along, narrow that pathway as you go along is really key. But then the advising structure matters a huge amount as well. We will never in the United States go to uh, a system like the traditional French system, where based on your scores, you are tracked into a particular area of study. Uh, STEM, if you're a high performer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and decisions are made for you in the 10th grade about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. That is not American. And, and personally, it's not something that I would support. But what that means is that the advising function becomes hugely important, which is we've got to help students understand what are you interested in? Help them really explore that and then assertively curate the content that they explore to figure out if they're right or not. As they get further along in their educational career, advisors will help them then stay on a track they've chosen once they've explored a few things and confirmed that they're on the track that they really want. Uh, but, but, but I think the idea is that in this market-based approach, we need clarity in pathways, and we need really strong advising systems. Yeah, absolutely. I just think about the information that we have available to us as traditional consumers when we're on the Amazon marketplace or whatever. You know, we need that kind of um, attention to detail and support as well. So that's fantastic. There's a really interesting analogy to me. I, I actually, um, as I've thought about higher ed, it feels more like, uh, for those of you who have, um, who are listening to this, who have retirement accounts. Um, I think of higher education choices as more, more like the marketplace for the stocks and bonds and other investments in your retirement account. Interesting. I think it's, if you think we, about 4,000 colleges, each with an average of 100 or 200 programs, you're really talking about thousands and thousands of decisions. And coming back into your point about first-generation college students, lower-income students, black, Hispanic, uh, indigenous students who may not have a tradition of going to higher ed in their families or may have been marginalized in the economy so they don't have a lot of role models in terms of what professions may be available to them. Uh, imagine trying to make a choice between those thousands and thousands of choices uh, that they have. Um, it's more like that than in Amazon where you know, I know I need a toaster oven. I write toaster oven in, and I can see what the rankings of toaster ovens are. Yeah. I do think the marketplace feels more to me like the stock market than it does like a, a, a product market, 
a consumer product market uh, uh, in, in, in sort of traditional retail. Yeah, no, what a great metaphor. And, and again, the importance of guidance and good information as well in those choices. You can always return a toaster oven, but it's a, it's a lot more difficult when you're making that bigger decision that has such long-term implications as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the pathway into the workforce. Uh, the workforce connection is a big part of your work, and student success um, is not just degree completion, but it's on into a meaningful career, a meaningful employment post-career. Um, that means that there needs to be good connection, uh, not only data and understanding of what the workforce needs are, um, but really partnering with business in a way to ensure that experiential learning opportunities and internships and pathways into those employments. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the role of business or employers in the engagement part of uh, building successful pathways? Yeah, I employers are hugely important um, partners to higher ed in enabling work-based learning opportunities. Um, and applied learning opportunities. A couple of things just ab about that idea. One is students who are engaged in applied opportunities seem to do better than those who are simply studying theoretical work. Uh, uh, educational research suggests that applied learning is a critical way adults understand what it is they've learned theoretically by applying it. Uh, and so that can happen in the classroom and there are there's great research from Carl Wyman, who's at Stanford University, on how to increase learning in science classrooms um, in using theoretical constructs. Uh, but, but, but what all of them find is that lecturing alone is not a great way to teach, that you need to couple theoretical knowledge, reading, lecturing, with application. And the closer you get to a career choice, the more that needs to be work-based learning. Uh, whether that's simulations in the classroom, we've seen that, uh, or it is actual internships aligned to what it is that you're studying. Employers complain a lot that students don't have work-ready skills. And uh, the, the, the best prepared students have had an opportunity to work with those employers. Employers need to get in the game, however, and uh, they need to make internships available. They need to make those internships available in ways that are coordinated with the college so that students can complete their coursework while they're doing the work-based learning. And they need to not take students out of their programs that are the most successful before they complete those programs simply for short-term gain. When employers have that attitude, which is that they're in this for a long-term supply chain of talent, into the company, uh, and they're willing to provide what it is students need and to make sure that students complete their credentials along the way. We see fantastic partnerships emerge. Uh, we've seen it around the country, uh, actually just, uh, just across the, the, uh, the river at George Mason University. Um, they've been doing amazing work in cybersecurity, in technology. And they have a pathway through the community college to do that as well. We see it in Valencia and Orlando um, uh, doing amazing work uh, for Disney and for Universal Studios, uh, where the investment in the college is phenomenal. And it's not just an investment in uh, work-based learning, but also in scholarships for students. They start to understand that they can get better prepared graduates 
if they make the work-based learning opportunities uh, available. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the most important changes and transitions in our culture that has to happen in order to really address educational inequities and connect them more explicitly to the workforce. That building that partnership, it hasn't always been a natural, easy partnership. I think um, as someone who's been in higher education myself for a long time, there's always been a bit of a tension uh, with the institutions that I was in between the business community, looking, waiting for more students to do X, Y, and Z, um, and frustrated that there weren't enough students, and the academic planners uh, thinking like, well, we don't want to get too invested in with them. We're not just a pipeline to, to you know, for employers. We have a wide range of things that we do here that are important for society, for democracy, for the student growth. So that alignment has not always been great. And it's really exciting to hear about some of these partnerships, especially at George Mason. We're working hard here at Shady Grove to also more explicitly incorporate business engagement and employer engagement in everything that we do here, from planning to, to student opportunities. So could you talk more about that relationship, the, how it's changing, where you see some of the changes, and what's driving the change as well? Yeah, I, th- I think leadership is key to driving the change. I think, um, so, so back to the market-based approach. Yeah. When students and families are surveyed and asked what they want out of higher education, uh, the very top thing is they want a better life. They want opportunity. And so if you're going to give them better opportunity, you need to both deliver value at the back end, and it starts with a decent job. It doesn't mean that everybody should be a stockbroker. It means a fulfilling career. But it also doesn't mean that you graduate without the skills to get a family a job with family-sustaining wages, right? So, so one is you've got to deliver value, but also you have to show students the value along the way. Um, only about 50 to 60% of American college students graduate. And one of the questions is, how do we retain and graduate more students? Well, one is you make the value apparent while they're in education. They don't have to wait until they've completed the education. So... It's really important that we do this work for the purposes of the academic experience that we know we want them to have, not just for workforce, but also so that our graduates can be engaged in democracy, our graduates can be engaged uh, uh, in, in, um, in understanding fact from fiction, can be engaged in their communities. We know that there are better health outcomes. There are all kinds of things that attend to completing college that really matter. Um, there's also a caution here, though. Um, for years and years, employers have been telling us we don't have enough engineers. And if we go back 50, 60, 70 years, it's been cyclical. Sometimes we don't have enough engineers, and sometimes there are actually enough or too many engineers. But the, the, the alarm bells from industry have always been the same. We have to understand their incentive structure, which is they would love to have 100 engineers from which to pick 10. And it's not their business to worry about what happens with the other 90. So we need to, as public institutions, honor our responsibility to make sure that students are um, having the skills they need to enter a, a, a workplace where, where there are jobs available for the skills that they're gaining. The other side of this is that there's a proliferation of low-wage work in our country. Um, We've all read about it, and we're seeing clamoring uh, from Amazon workers, uh, actually from workers at colleges, 
to unionize more and more. Um, and, and the reason for that is there's a lot of low-wage work. Um, we need to make sure that we're not delivering skills to companies that are unwilling to pay a family-sustaining wage. And as higher ed institutions, that's our obligation as well. So, so I think you know, the reasons for the tense relationship are at times that higher education has not leaned in heavily enough to delivering work-based learning to students so that they are job ready. We have work to do in higher ed. The flip side of it is that industry would love to have free training, and sometimes they're not willing to pay a family-sustaining wage at the back end of that, and they have work to do. So I do think that higher ed should continue, administrators, program heads, faculty members, advisors, be fully aware of what the different incentive structures are for the businesses they're working with and what the college's obligations are and act accordingly. All that said, uh, there are terrific jobs out there that are waiting in virtually every community in healthcare, information technology. We have an incredible, you know, in, in Montgomery County, we have biotech, just an enormous set of opportunities around biotech um, that, are, that are unique to this area. Uh, that where there are jobs waiting. And um, by focusing on making sure that we connect students to those programs, that we have diversity in those programs, help students uh, get ready, and then develop the relationships with the employers for work-based learning, I think we can um, expand opportunity dramatically. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great um, context, and especially the analysis of the different incentive systems from the different partners. It's extremely helpful. And again, a really great illustration of why this pathway concept is so important, because it, it, it encourages more collective thinking and how we tackle these things as well. I want to, you raised the importance of um, many, many businesses are becoming unionized again, a lot of low wages. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the student and today's student as well. You know, we've, we've done some work here trying to think about the future student and using the analogy of how sports fans are changing, for example, in terms of their greater fluidity, the choices that they want, the, the possibilities. And I think today's student also, they're working, they have families, they're looking for online, in-person, flexible work while while in school, school back in work. You know, there there needs to be a, that kind of flexibility and fluidity, if you will, with, with today's student. Um, but there's also, it seems to me, a real change in the values that today's students are bringing to not only their education, but their choices about employment. And um, the pandemic has, I think, crystallize some of this and really emphasize the, what people think are important, but really looking for workplaces that value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and honor, honor um, those values in their practice, and uh, that are, that are um, you know, really good about honoring work-life balance as well. We're starting to see some of these trends and the choices that people are making about the companies they want to work for, the businesses they want to work for. It's not just a matter of, we've got a great job, here's a great salary, you're going to join us. Uh, people are much more discriminating. Today's student, I think, and future employee is much more discriminating in terms of how you know where they want to go. Are you seeing the same kind of trends, and what do you think that means for, again, the education pathway and our business partnerships? So you're absolutely right, Anne. One, one of the ideas of pathways is that we should put down 
on paper what it is we want students to experience so that they are prepared for a workplace that is increasingly diverse. Population is diversifying, um, where diversity, equity, and inclusion will be valued more in the future, and where employers are expecting that as people progress into management, that they have the skills to ensure that a diverse workforce feels included, their ideas are valued, uh, they're able to work well in teams with one another. And so when we talk about educational pathways and the connection to this um, uh, dynamic that you described of this, this uh, demand by younger generations for a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplace, we need to include in those pathways ideas of teamwork, ideas of a, a, a rich curriculum that includes uh, authors and scientists and thinkers from diverse backgrounds uh, that is not just about a single person lecturing, but about uh, an inquiry-based conversation among classmates so that people can learn from one another um, about also as we think about the work-based learning that's on those pathways. Are we sending people into diverse workplaces so that they can learn and observe what it means to work in that context? So you're absolutely right that there is both a demand and an imperative for greater DEI in the workplace. Uh, and that we can build that into the pathways that we have. That, that's what, uh, earlier when I was talking about the learning goals that we have, we need to include what are the DEI learning goals that we would want on each pathway um, and talk to employers about what they're expecting as well. It, employers understand who the future workforce is going to be. Um, and while not all of them are fully enlightened into how to get there, uh, what we see is that when colleges can help the employer understand who the student body is going is right now, meaning who is your future workforce going to be, that they really can partner in helping to prepare students better for the coming workforce, the workforce of tomorrow, not the one of yesterday. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that very much. And I think, again, the, the pathway idea, the more employers are involved in how we build and implement those pathways, the more that DEI work becomes a natural part of the workplace as well. So that's, that's terrific. I want to go to um, some of the fantastic work that you've done specifically on community colleges. And at the Aspen Institute, you lead the College Excellence Program, which has a program that recognizes outstanding community colleges that are achieving great student success. And you also recognize leaders and work with leaders who have the great potential to do more um, and to lead in, in student success, lead institutions in that direction as well. And you've written, of course, extensively on community college success. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of community colleges in this pathway? Um, you highlighted early on about open access and the importance of open access in our system and how many institutions uh, create a lot of choice and opportunity because they are open access institutions. That's our community colleges. And so could you talk a little bit about the importance of community colleges and what you've learned in your tremendous work at the Aspen Institute about their role in this pathway system? Yeah, it, it, uh, thank you for asking, Anne. And um, this has become a labor of love for me. Uh, 20 years ago, I knew very little about community colleges and started at the Jack Kent Cook Foundation where we asked the question, where are the high-achieving, low-income students in our country that need scholarships and grant support? Uh, and what we found 
was that at the time, 40 to 45% of all of our undergraduates in our country were in community college. And yet we had very, very few scholarships for them to support them in community college, let alone to transfer to a four-year institution. And then when you looked at the big scholarship efforts, the Rhodes, Truman, uh, National Science Foundation scholarships, the ones that supported students after undergraduate, very, very few students who came through community college actually were receiving those scholarships. And then started to look at some of the research done actually at the University of Maryland, research that was done in the University of California system. And they showed that students who started at community college and transferred to the likes of University of Maryland College Park, UC Berkeley, UCLA, did just as well as everybody else. The other stat that was so important is that community college students are much, much more diverse than are students who start their education in a four-year institution. They are reflective of the African-American population in our country, unlike in the four-year institutions where African-American students are not well represented. Uh, they are nearly twice as represented among Hispanic and indigenous students and lower-income students uh, as the population as a whole would suggest. So, so these are institution that, institutions that today you know, educate, depending on how you count, uh, a third to, to somewhere between a third and a half of all undergraduate students that are educating the, uh, the growing populations of students of color in our country. Um, and yet, um, uh, we weren't doing very well by those students. Graduation rates were relatively low. Um, so they're incredibly important to workforce development to being uh, the first two years of a, of a bachelor's degree program. They are working with the diverse students that um, will define the strength of our communities and the strength of our country's economy moving forward. Uh, and, um, and frankly, 20 years ago when I started this work, we just weren't paying any attention to them. Um, and we weren't paying attention to, among the 1,100 of them, which ones were doing the best job of enabling students to learn, to finish their degrees, and to succeed after graduation in the workforce and in transfer and bachelor's attainment. So the program that we've built at the Aspen Institute really is all about that. It's all about helping community colleges understand what practices lead to better outcomes for students, and then to develop the leaders who will uh, uh, lead these incredibly important institutions in our country to much higher and more equitable levels of student success. Yeah, oh, it's terrific. I, um, we have a wonderful partner here in Montgomery County with Montgomery College, uh, an outstanding community college. Uh, students go to Montgomery College and then they transfer into the programs here at the universities at Shady Grove. So, yeah, our our approach, our two plus two approach, is you know based upon strong partnerships with community colleges and community college success. And yet, we've seen through the pandemic a really uh, really serious decline in enrollment in community colleges. And can you talk a little bit about why why we're seeing that decline and how we might reverse it? Yeah, well, the decline, you're right, in, in the pandemic, but it actually extends a decade back. Um, we've been seeing a serious decline uh, um, in, in the number of college students. It's something like 3 million fewer students in, in higher ed. Uh, and there are only 20 million when we started counting. Uh, um, so, so this is a 15% decline. Yeah. Um, and that has huge ramifications. So the Department of Education did some surveying a year into the pandemic or so, 
And they found that there were three reasons that people were leaving during the pandemic. One, they were worried about their health. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the second is that they weren't comfortable with the online education being offered. They didn't feel that they could succeed in online education. And we have to ask the questions, how much of that is learning styles and how much of it is the quality of what we're offering? And then the third is that their, um, their need for, for income uh, led them to leave. Um, they, they just couldn't afford the opportunity costs or the costs at all right. associated with staying in, in education. The more interesting question for me is how do we, how do we get the enrollment back? Yeah. Right? It, it, if, if, if those are the challenges, the question is how do we help people understand? There is actually evidence in the field that we can point to of colleges that through the last 10 years have seen increases in enrollment while others were decreasing enrollment. And a variable that seems to really matter is they deliver value to students. They are actually creating clear pathways to degrees. Those credentials that students earn give them good jobs, uh, or they give them a foothold in a four-year institution where they're likely to get a bachelor's degree, not just transfer and enter, but likely to get a bachelor's degree, which in turn leads to a good job. Um, where we see uh, at San Antonio College in the, uh, uh, in the Alamo College District, uh, uh, as at Valencia, as I just mentioned uh, earlier, um, at other places that are increasing enrollment, they've done really good work to deliver value to students. And so I, I, I take from that that life can be difficult. There are a lot of reasons to leave higher ed, and there are a lot of reasons never to show up. But if the value proposition is strong, no matter what the conditions are, people are more likely to come. I don't want to minimize the disruption of COVID or, uh, or how difficult it can be for people to be in higher education. There are lots of other things we need to attend to. People need, uh, we have homelessness, we have food insecurity. We absolutely have to attend to those things. But as higher ed institutions, we also can bring enrollments back if we focus on these pathways that lead to good outcomes for students. I think that really is, if we raise our sights and think long-term, that really is where we need to go if we're going to bring students back and make sure that we have an educated citizenry uh, that, is, that, 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 that gains all of the things higher education can deliver in addition to a good job. Um, we've got to deliver value and, and, and double down on, uh, on that focus. I can't think of a better place to wrap this up. Um, thank you for that. I agree wholeheartedly. We have work to do, but it's very positive, and we can do it. And I think you're right. There are very clear things we can all do together in building these pathways. But it does take a collective mindset to do it. It does take some collective leadership and like-minded um, efforts to try to do this. And so we're so grateful for your leadership in this area and the work that you've done. Thank you so much. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I deeply appreciate it. Thank well, thank you, you and, and thank you for your leadership. I think the model at Shady Grove is, is uh, really a unique one, uh, particularly the two plus two programs that, that you've offered and um, the idea of connecting to what Montgomery County has to offer. This is a rich, diverse community. Uh, and the idea of an institution like this that is working to bring other entities into a center where uh, opportunity is made available and these pathways are made clear for students uh, is a rich one and a model that other parts of the country really ought to be 
looking at. So thank you for your leadership and, uh, and for having me here today. Thank you so much. It was been great. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me for this edition of AKA Innovation. You know, as I reflect on this remarkable conversation with Josh Weiner, what really stands out for me is, first of all, that we do have a higher education system that is based on a free market that has a proliferation of options. But like any free market, the consumer, the student, needs protection, needs some guidance. Like any free market, there are equity challenges, access challenges, affordability challenges, and the need to better connect choices to outcomes. The concept of the pathway helps us do that. I look forward to continuing this important conversation. Thanks for joining us on this edition of AKA Innovation.